Since the beginning of the pandemic, the American Medical Association has led the fight against COVID-19. As the nation copes with the effects of the crisis, we continue to offer tireless advocacy and expert resources. I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. This episode is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Today marks our 100th episode of providing physicians with what they need to know about COVID-19. Today, we'll look again at the numbers, trends, and latest news about COVID-19 with AMA's Chief Health and Science Officer, Dr. Mira Irons in Chicago. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Uh, Dr. Irons, let's start by reviewing this week's numbers. Uh, Let's talk about the trends with new cases. Sure. So the new case recount count as of this morning was 5,404,115 cases, still rising. Um, and the deaths as of this morning are 170,052. Um, we still see the cases rising. They may have slowed compared to two weeks ago. You know, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we were talking about 70,000 new cases a day. Um, last week, it was in the mid-50s. And over the weekend, we were in the high 40,000. Um, range. So so maybe that is a slowing, you know, in, in some of the states that were having surges. Um, but when you look across the country, it's pretty much the same map. Um, you know, um, a lot of the surge, uh, you know, the Sun Belt and the West Coast is still seeing a lot of a lot of cases. We're starting to see upticks in cases in states like Illinois um, and some of the other states that were were holding their numbers. Um, and New England, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut are still doing really well. I mean, if you look at the positivity rate. For New York um, and Connecticut, it's less than 1%. Um, New Jersey is about 1.4%. Some of those other states um, in New England and the mid-Atlantic are in the 2 to 4% um, positivity range, as opposed to several other states that are still over 10%, you know, where the surges were. Well, we're still averaging more than 1,000 deaths per day in August. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the trends there? Yeah, well, the trend is, is is starting to we're starting to see a plateau, you know. When we when we think back to March and April, when the when the first surges started, we saw a steep rise, and then um, and then we saw a, a decline that continued. What we're seeing now is we seem to be plateaued at a, over a thousand a thousand deaths a day um, for for you know several weeks now. Um, and so that just makes, you know, it just reaffirms the fact that the surges are real. Um, so at this rate, about a thousand deaths a day, we'll cross that 200,000 mark uh, in a month. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that the um, the CDC started, you know, began to say that last week and the week before, you know, and I just think back to the discussions early in March and April, where 200,000 was was out there as a possibility. Um, and, um, you know, we we all hoped it wouldn't happen, but I think we are going to hit it. That's, that's bad news. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about some of those underlying trends that are leading to that. Uh, first off, let's talk about virus testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's happening with that? Well, I think that, you know, the diagnostic testing, um, we're hearing from a lot of places that there are, 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 are long delays 
in getting your results back. Um, there are supply chain issues that we've known about. You know, early on it was it was um, uh, viral transport media, PPE, you know, nasopharyngeal swabs. Um, a lot of the laboratories are saying that the reagent supplies are low, and so um, you know, I think that there are delays in getting tested. But it seems to be in pockets of the country. You know, where there is a large demand, there's a, a, a large time lag, um, perhaps in areas where there is less demand, you know, the, the results are coming back quicker. Um, but we are, over the last week, the number of tests done per day trended down. It seems like it's gone up again a little over the last few days. So that kind of uh, the delays in receiving results, to mm -hmm. some extent, we were concerned that it was dissuading people from even getting tested. Do you see that as maybe hopefully turning around? Hope so. But, you know, I think the important thing also is that once someone's tested, if they're tested because they have symptoms or if they have um, have had a known exposure, um, you need you really need to quarantine yourself until you get the test result back. You know, and when you have long delays um, before getting the results back, you don't have the opportunity. You know, if you find out you're positive seven days later, but you have not effectively quarantined yourself, then you have exposed um, a lot of people, you know. Can you give us some perspective on how many tests a day we should be doing relative to where we are? You know, I don't know that anybody really knows what that that true number is we've actually had you know people have have gone from anywhere from you know 750,000 a million a day to you know tens of millions a day um i think that um the, the the true there are a lot of different opinions as to what that number should be you know um but i think the reality is that we're not anywhere near where we need to be i think people have congregated around that you'd like the positivity rate to be at 3% or less, you know, and in order to get there, you have to test a lot of people just to, just to see where you are so that you can identify people and, you know, quarantine them, isolate them to get down to that number. Well, and a very positive uh, piece of news, big news okay. coming out of uh, uh, the FDA and uh, about a test from Yale University. You want to talk about that new coronavirus test? Yeah. And so um, it's a saliva-based test. It is a genetic test, but it, it actually can be, um, there is, it's a different way of, of, um, of doing the diagnostic test so that instead of taking, you know, 12 hours or even 24 hours, you, you can get your result much faster. Um, and so, and it is a saliva-based test, which doesn't require the, um, the, the swabs and, and the media and a lot of the reagents for running um, uh, running the test the way it, it has been run in the PCR-based test. Um, and so it allows people to, it allows labs um, to test larger numbers of, pe of people more effectively and, and more quickly. That's a uh, very good news. Uh, according to our guest from last week on the show, Dr. Marcus Pleasure, we talk about contact tracing. That really is tied so closely in terms of our ability to be able to test uh, larger numbers of people more regularly. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you want to identify people quickly, identify their contacts, and then test. Um, and this will certainly do that. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the uh, latest research on children mm -hmm. uh, and their results for uh, coronavirus. Oh, absolutely. And, um, and, and sadly, it's not what we had hoped it would be. 
You know, I think that, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, um, we've known that children seem to um, be infected less often and seem not to have as severe, not to be as severely affected as adults. Um, that seemed to be, you know, the the what we were learning. Um, what we're seeing now is that um, the numbers are higher than we would have expected. So the American Academy of Pediatrics, I think it was last week or the week before, issued a, a, a study that over 338,000 children have been infected, have tested positive since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but the number that is really startling is that 97,000 children were um, tested positive the last two weeks in July. And if you look at um, the, the reports coming out of the CDC, um, the hospitalization rate has gone up steadily from March through the end of July for children. Um, and if you look at the severe cases, about one third of the kids that are hospitalized end up in intensive care units. You know, some of those kids are ventilated. Um, the disparities are there also. Um, if you're a Hispanic child, you are eight times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID. Um, and if you're a black child, you're five times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID than your, than your white peers. Um, and so um, we are seeing that kids are are being effect, infected. They are being hospitalized. They are be, they are being severely affected. Um, and then then we have known about the multi-inflammatory system disease that comes afterwards in kids. Well, let's talk about uh, vaccines and treatments. Mm -hmm. Any news this week? Nothing really new this week. I mean, the phase three trials are continuing. Um, hoping, you know, we hope just that enough people will um, volunteer for those trials that we can start seeing those results coming in soon. Um, and there are still um, several thousand trials going on for, for therapies. Um, so nothing new, but things are continuing in the right way. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Uh, a couple of confusing issues uh, that have popped up over the last few weeks. Talk first about uh, the switch in data collection during the pandemic and what impact that's having on reporting. So you might remember that in July, um, the the hospital data collection system had always run through the through the CDC. Um, and then at some point in July, um, HHS um, wanted to get wanted hospitals to um, uh, report more data elements. And in an attempt to be more nimble <laughs> and add more data elements to a reporting structure, um, they asked the hospitals to report directly to HHS. Um, and um, so that they wouldn't be double reporting to the CDC and to the HHS at the same time. Um, the, um, the positive news is that it seems as though um, twice as many hospitals are reporting through the HHS data reporting system than had reported through CDC. However, it's taking time to clean up the data. Um, and the data wasn't being updated. It was over a week 
had passed um, before um, the updates to the data, the key indicators were being um, put out there on the public website. Um, and some of those key indicators like hospital bed availability, um, ICU bed availability are what um, uh, products and resources are allocated by um, and also what local health authorities, um, governors, mayors use to direct some of their policies. Um, and so we're watching that very closely. Um, mm -hmm. It's also a new, uh, a new study about masks. We know that wearing masks are important, but apparently yeah. some masks are better than others, uh, yeah. particularly about uh, uh, gators would be the yeah. one that was labeled as a being a problematic. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it was an interesting study. It came out over the weekend um, or at the end of last week, and it came from Duke, and it was done actually by their physics and chemistry departments. Um, and the goal of the study was to actually um, measure the efficacy of certain masks in um, transmitting viral particles, respiratory particles. Um, and so they looked at 14 different masks, and it started from the N95 respirators, and it went through surgical masks and a variety of cloth masks um, that look like surgical masks with the ear loops, you know, that come close to your face, but then also had um, bandanas and neck gaiters. Um, and what they found was actually the most efficient mask was the N95 respirator, which we would have thought. Um, the surgical mask came in second, but many cloth masks that were made with more than one layer of cloth actually were almost as effective as the surgical masks, which was really good news. I think the news that was um, more concerning to some people, um, especially athletes who tend to wear bandanas and, and the neck gaiters was that um, there it, it wasn't as efficient. Um, and in fact, I think it was the fleece gaiter that was less efficient than the control, which was no mask at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's just that um, it was both the material that the mask was made from you know, if you, if you hold the material up to the light and you can see through it, then it's not going to be effective. And I think a lot of the neck gaiters and the, and the bandanas tend to be like a really thin poly, one layer polyester. Um, but then also there was some issue with the fleece masks that they thought um, was, was affecting droplet size. So I think the take home from that was that um, the masks, you know, the effective masks are ones that actually, you know, cover your nose, cover your mouth and come close to your, come close to your face rather than having an open area in the bottom. All right. Well, finally, uh, any key messages from AMA uh, that people, we want people to hear this week? Yeah, we did. Um, so the AMA wrote a letter to um, to Secretary Azar um, asking for prioritization of uh, for doctors and the public to also prioritize the use of diagnostic testing for COVID. You know, given given the increased capacity, increased uh, demand for COVID testing because of the surges, the decrease in, in the concern with resources. Um, our focus was that um, testing should be prioritized to those for medically with a medical need, either symptoms of, of COVID, known contacts, testing that was required before a procedure, before a medically indicated procedure. Um, and so that letter went out last week. Finally, uh, also a uh, uh, something from the Michigan State Medical Society around prior authorization. Can you comment on that? 
Yep. So um, Michigan Medical Society and the AMA re uh, released a survey um, finding potentially harmful consequences of prior authorization um, processes improved by improved by health, insur health insurers and actually found that the burdensome red tape adversely affected patient outcomes, um, just adding to the delays in, in getting care for people. So that has been uh, known for some time that yes. uh, patients are suffering uh, when that occurs in certain uh, circumstances. So uh, I know the AMA's position on that is that it must stop. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciate you being here for a hundredth episode. Uh, thanks for sharing your perspective and these important updates. That's it for today's COVID-19 update. For updated resources on COVID-19, go to ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. This content was originally published as part of AMA's COVID-19 daily video updates. Find the latest at ama-assn.org slash COVID update. I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. You can also subscribe to other great AMA podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.